Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thank you for listening to us today. How are you doing, Ben? I'm doing pretty good. No complaints. How about yourself, Sarah? Good. Um, We had a very special episode last week, Bride of Frankenstein. Yes. And before that was a very, very special episode of Scream Scene about the Hollywood production code. Mm-hmm. And this week's movie is not as special as Bride of Frankenstein, perhaps. But do you want to tell us a bit about it? Sure. Uh, this week we're watching Mark of the Vampire. It's a reunion of sorts because it's director Todd Browning and actor Bill Lugosi making a vampire movie. Yay! But it's at MGM, not Universal. Weird. (laughs) (laughs) The last time we saw a horror movie from MGM, it was Freaks. Which didn't go too well for them. No. Or Todd Browning. (laughs) No, and it was a while ago. Because Freaks was 1932, and we're into 1935 now. So it's it's been a while, and um, if you listen to our Freaks episode, you'll have a good background understanding into why maybe MGM backed off of the horror genre (laughs) for a while. Yes, yeah. After the failure of Freaks, Todd Browning's career was in very dire straits. Mm. He was still on contract to MGM, but he couldn't get any of his projects greenlit. They were pretty wary of letting him do one of his ideas. So he was still on contract, so it wasn't like that same kind of fallout that happened between Robert Flurry and Universal, where he was just kind of, like, kicked out completely. Yeah, so one of the things that the contract system in the 30s and 40s could be used for was um, equally punishment as well as employment, in the sense that MGM wasn't going to greenlit any of Todd Browning's ideas to make movies, but by keeping him on contract, it meant he couldn't go to any other studios to make any other movies for anyone else either. Okay. Um, so it, it sort of, they could prevent him from working altogether by not letting him out of his contract. That's a real dick move. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a, a common one for studios to play with employees who they were upset with. Mm-hmm. Browning thought that maybe if he could recapture the success of Dracula... It could turn things around for him. So he pitched the idea of a vampire film starring Bela Lugosi to the studio heads. And Lugosi, of course, was similarly in dire straits at this time. They agreed to permit Browning to try. I suspect because the MGM studio execs would have known that Bride of Frankenstein was in production over at Universal at about the same time. Mm -hmm. So if Universal's going to make a Frankenstein sequel with the original star and director of Frankenstein, and we've got the original director of Dracula on contract, let's put out, you know, a competing film with the original director and star of Dracula, was probably the thinking. Dracula was copyrighted by Universal, though. Yeah. um, Or the the rights for film adaptations, I mean. Exactly, yeah. Universal had the Dracula rights for film adaptation. So 
MGM couldn't make a Dracula movie, so they had to use some source material that they had access to, which led to the decision to make the new film a remake of Browning's earlier vampire film that had been produced at MGM, London After Midnight. Mm-hmm. So we didn't, um, we didn't cover London After Midnight on the show. Uh, so if, you, if you're listening along and you're going, oh, did I miss that episode... Like, don't worry. Um, we didn't cover it because, uh, well, Sarah, do you want to tell us a little bit about London After Midnight? For sure. So, London After Midnight wasn't covered because it's a lost film. Mm-hmm. And part of that cult status that it has is because it's a lost film, but also because it's Lon Chaney as a vampire. Mm-hmm. So, as you said, it was made in 1927, and kind of the the way that it's best described is a mystery film with horror overtones. Mm -hmm. And if a film like that was released in 1935, we, I don't know if we would even consider it a horror film considering how the genre has developed up to this point. Mm -hmm. But in 1927, a mystery film with horror overtones was kind of what we were getting. Yeah, for sure. So just to remind listeners, the films that were coming out in 1927 and even the year prior, 1926, is The Cat and the Canary, The Unknown, which was also with Todd Browning and Lon Chaney, The Bat, and The Magician. Mm -hmm. And as you'll find from the synopsis I'll give about London After Midnight, you'll see how it really fits in alongside The Cat and the Canary and The Bat in terms of that old dark house kind of subgenre, I guess we're calling it. Yeah. Our actors in London After Midnight include Lon Chaney, who audiences would have seen in Browning's 1927 film The Unknown, Mm -hmm. and uh, before that, um, Phantom of the Opera from 1925, as far as horror pictures go. Right. Other cast members included Marceline Day, Conrad Nagel, Henry B. Walthall, and Polly Morin. Besides Chaney... All these people are newcomers to horror and never did horror again, save Henry B. Walthall. Okay. Long-time listeners may recognize the name. We first saw him as the minstrel in 1909's The Sealed Room. Really? Yep. Huh. And later, in 1914's The Avenging Conscience, in the lead role. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. That was a while ago. Yes. <laughs> Walthall would appear in many horror and what I would call horror-adjacent films throughout his three-decade career until he passed away in 1936. Okay. As for their parts in London After Midnight, Walthall plays Sir James Hamlin and Cheney plays police inspector Edward C. Burke. Mm-hmm. But I thought Cheney played a vampire. What if it's both? (laughs) London After Midnight is actually based off a short story that Todd Browning wrote. And to adapt that story into a screenplay, the writer Waldemar Young was hired. That name sounds familiar. Yeah, um, he had worked with Browning on his film The Unknown. uh, And we saw his work again in 1932's Island of Lost Souls. Right, yes. That's that's where I remember it now. Those are Young's entries into horror, but he had a very successful career outside the genre, mm-hmm. um, especially as he uh, would 
begin working with Cecil B. DeMille. Mm-hmm. In London After Midnight, Roger Balfour is dead okay. from an apparent self-inflicted bullet wound. Inspector Burke, played by Cheney, arrives to investigate, and the three people who had been in the house at the same time, the butler, Sir James Hamlin, played by Walthall, and the nephew, Arthur Hibbs. The case appears closed after they find a suicide note, but not everyone is convinced. Mm. Five years later, (laughs) (laughs) uh, this now empty house has new tenants who begin to suspect the house is haunted by vampires. Okay. They see a man with sharp, pointed teeth and a woman with a ghostly appearance wandering around the house or making strange appearances in the garden. Hmm. As the living Balfours uh, come in to investigate, they find Roger Balfour's tomb empty. In this old dark house kind of style, there's a lot of people running around with some scares, and throughout that whole process, it's also revealed that the vampire, the man with the sharp teeth, has hypnotic powers. Sure, yeah. Things come to a head when the vampire and his ghosts are revealed as Inspector Burke and some strangers uh, in disguise as part of a plot by the nephew Biggs to get Sir James Hamlin to confess to Roger's murder. That is a long con. Like, five years later? Yes. That's a while to, like, get that same police inspector on your team and convince him to pretend to be a vampire. (laughs) It was a very successful film. It grossed just over $1 million. Wow. Wow. But reception was a little mixed. Okay. Um, with more critical articles noting that the plot was very convoluted. Mm. But I will point out that a convoluted plot is kind of characteristic of that old dark house trope. That's very true. And uh, with that synopsis, you can also see how it's part and parcel with the other horror films of the day, like The Cat and the Canary and The Bat. Yeah, it's got that Scooby-Doo ending. Mm-hmm. Except it's the inspector under the mask, not right. the bad guy. Yes, yeah, a little, <laughs> a little bit different. But here's two reasons why it's kind of considered notable, despite its similarities with the other films of the day. As you know, Lon Chaney's kind of a master of disguise, mm-hmm. and the fact that he plays like kind of a dual role here as someone who puts on a disguise that kind of allows the audience a peek behind the curtain. His disguise kit was actually used as a prop. In the movie. Okay. And that would be pretty significant because, like, he generally kept his methods pretty secretive and was usually pretty wary of, you know, showing how he affected these transformations. Yeah. So that's kind of a, a hook to draw people in. Sure. But kind of more importantly, or perhaps more of the reason why it's become more of a cult film, mm is that the last surviving copy of London After Midnight was destroyed in the 1967 MGM Vault Fire. Mm-hmm. So only film stills, promotional materials, and the original script remains. Right. Uh, now in 2002, Turner Classic Movies did manage to put together kind of a version of the film using these film stills and using the original script to kind of sew everything together, but that's about as close as you can get to seeing Lunder After Midnight. Unless you count this 1935 remake. Right. (laughs) So, um, because London After Midnight had featured a twist ending, 
when making this remake, uh, the decision was made to change the title, as well as many details of the story, in order to sort of cloak the relation between the two works, so that, you know, even if someone seeing this movie had seen London After Midnight, they might not know right away that it was a remake, so that, you know, the, the twist ending isn't as spoiled. One of the ways this was done is the role played by Lon Chaney in London After Midnight was split into two different characters in Mark of the Vampire. Mark of the Vampire features a script from sort of a new set of writers, and uh, the movie doesn't actually credit the London After Midnight writers or that film at all anywhere in its credits. So they were kind of cloaking the, the fact that this was a remake. Is it still um, adapting Todd Browning's short story or is it more focused on kind of revising the original film script um i think it's you know a a chain of adaptation i guess so uh if that original film was based on that short story this is based on that film and then going from there uh changing it up the new writer for mark of the vampire uh was guy endor uh and he's quite an interesting fellow uh he was born Samuel Goldstein in 1901 in Brooklyn. His mother committed suicide when he was four, so his father changed the family's whole name uh, to try and move past the tragedy, and then he had a dream that his dead wife willed the children a European education, so he sent Guy and his siblings to live in Vienna under the care of a Catholic governess. Okay. Then the money dried up and their father disappeared, so they were sent back to America to live in Pittsburgh. Okay. (laughs) Endor attended Columbia University, earning his bachelor's and master's degree there. Um, He tried to earn a PhD, but didn't quite get there. Um, He rented out his room to a wealthier student and slept on the floor in order to afford tuition. While he was at Columbia University, he was drawn to leftist movements, uh, becoming opposed to classism, capitalism, imperialism, and racism. After graduation, he became a novelist, his first novel being about an impoverished college graduate obsessed with becoming wealthy. (laughs) Write what you know, I guess. Sure. He would find his greatest success in the horror genre in 1933 with his novel The Werewolf of Paris which is sort of considered to be the werewolf novel in the same way that Dracula was the vampire novel. Uh, It was hugely financially successful, uh, very popular, very well regarded by critics, so that really sort of made Endor's career. In addition to other horror and fantasy novels he wrote at this time, Endor also translated the works of Hans Heinz Evers into English and was a committed uh, social activist as well, writing pamphlets, for example, in the defense of the Scottsboro Boys and other racial justice issues of the time. Mm. His 1934 novel, Babook, was a piece of what Endor called Marxist historical fiction, presenting a sympathetic depiction of the Haitian Revolution. It got a mixed reception from white critics and a positive one from black critics. Mm. Ender and his wife moved to Hollywood in the early 1930s, and he began his movie career with the storyline for the 1935 musical film Roomba for Paramount, uh, following this up with Mark of the Vampire, which was 
much more his speed genre wise. Definitely. Endor's um a pretty interesting guy. Uh we're gonna run into him in future films on the list as well. Um and uh he goes on to have a career that intersected with the House Committee on Un American Activities because of his communist sympathies. Mm. Now, one of Todd Browning's strengths uh, on Dracula had been cinematographer Carl Freund, and on Mark of the Vampire, he would be graced with a similarly good cinematic collaborator, James Wong Hao. Born Huang Zong Zhen in Taishan, China in 1899, Hao moved with his family to the U.S. at the age of five. And despite an interest in photography from a young age, he pursued many different interests as a young man, including boxing and aviation. His first film industry job was at a Famous Players Film Development Lab. In order to earn additional money, Howe took publicity stills of Hollywood stars. While doing so, he discovered a method that he could use to make actress Mary Miles Minter's eyes look darker by photographing her by looking at a dark surface. At the time, in the 1920s, um, black and white film was orthochromatic, which meant that colors like blue and green uh, looked white in terms of the monochromaticness of them, whereas colors like red and brown and yellow looked black. So if you had blue eyes, um, they often wouldn't show up on black and white film oh. uh, because they were too light to be picked up. So you'd get people who looked like they had, like... No pupils. N- well, like, purely white eyes. The, the, the dark pupils were there, right? But yeah. you didn't have the iris at all. Eventually, film stocks improved. Black and white film stocks improved so that this wasn't a problem. But what Howe did to solve this problem was he mounted a velvet frame around the camera and told the actresses to look at this black velvet frame so that the dark color of the black velvet would reflect in their eyes, making their eyes darker, allowing them to show up on the film. Okay. Because of this, Mary Miles Minters insisted that Howe be made the director of photography on her next feature film. So James Wong Howe became a cinematographer. Uh, He gained a reputation for making actresses look their best simply through lighting. Uh, without resorting to gauze or diffusion over the lens, which was the typical way of softening an actress's features. Mm. Howe worked very steadily through the 1920s, and despite a brief hiccup in his career uh, adjusting to sound film, his innovative work on the film Transatlantic in 1931 reestablished his preeminence among Hollywood cinematographers in the 30s and 40s. For uh, that film, Transatlantic, Howe invented uh, what is now called deep focus photography, which is more commonly associated with Greg Toland, um, who gets a lot of credit for innovating deep focus for Citizen Kane 10 years later in 1941. Mm -hmm. Uh, But Howe was the one who sort of came up with this uh, method whereby you would basically flood your sets with light, uh, so you overlight everything. But then you close the aperture on your camera really small to let in a very minimal amount of light. So from the camera's point of view, it doesn't look overlit. And then because there is so much light, you can focus everything. You can have the foreground, the midground, and the background all be in sharp focus. Uh, and that's deep focus photography. Um, How gained the nickname Low Key because he focused so much on like shadows and high contrast, low key 
lighting is mm-hmm. what that's called. And uh, generally his style is seen as sort of um, previewing what would later be the style of film noir. Howe viewed the cinematographer's job as being responsible for composition, atmosphere, mood, and action in the frame, in addition to lighting and camera movement. He gained a reputation as a perfectionist, but he would be nominated eight times for the Academy Award for Best Cinematography, winning the award twice. Good for him. As a director yourself, do you agree with his belief of what a cinematographer's job is? I think, um, in general, yes. I think that in modern times, um, a lot of current-day directors have taken over what the traditional job of the director of photography is in terms of deciding on composition and and lighting and and, and, uh, framing and camera movement and stuff. And the problem with that is I think it's come to the detriment of what a director's primary job really should be, which is working with actors. Mm -hmm. Um, I've seen very often directors who are so concerned with, you know, directing the look of their film that they forget to direct their cast. The, The problem becomes that, you know, setting up lights is the gaffer's job and deciding on lenses and, and operating, you know, the camera, you have, you have camera operators and a camera department for that, you know, and, and figuring out focus and all that kind of stuff. So if you aren't allowing the director of photography to be expressing that kind of creativity, um, in terms of deciding those other things, you've really taken away the point of their job, especially in digital where there is much less, figuring out that needs to occur in terms of getting the image than on film. Less math. Yes. (laughs) Uh, Howe was prevented from becoming a U.S. citizen until 1943 by the uh, Chinese Exclusion Act, uh, which basically excluded um, immigration for Chinese nationality to the United States between the 1880s and its repeal in 1943. And his 1937 marriage to novelist Samora Babb would not be legally recognized in the United States until 1949 due to anti-miscegenation laws. Mm-hmm. Some of Howe's most well-known films up to this point would include the 1924 version of Peter Pan, Lon Chaney's 1928 film Laugh, Clown, Laugh, and 1934's The Thin Man uh, from the year before, which was a huge hit for MGM, made over a million dollars, and sparked a long-running movie series that would spawn five sequels. Oh, wow. Later How films after this would include the live-action portions of Fantasia in 1940, uh, and then much later in his career, John Frankenheimer's Seconds in 1966. Oh, wow. Seconds is really good. Yes. Reportedly, uh, Browning was difficult to work with on set in this film. He demanded grueling expectations from the special effects people and the makeup men, commenting Lon Chaney would have done it better if he was unhappy with something. I mean, he's not wrong. Lon Lon Chaney probably could have done things better. (laughs) Between Browning and Howe's perfectionism, it was reportedly not a very fun set to work on. Supposedly, Browning worked very well with Lugosi. Makes sense. uh, On this film, and he was happy with him, but he was repeatedly frustrated with his other star actor, um, Lionel Barrymore. Ah, the Barrymore's return! Mm Mm-hmm. So born in 1873, Lionel is the older brother to Ethel and John Barrymore. 
Uh, and if you want to hear a lot about the Barrymore family lineage, you can go all the way back to our 1920 Jekyll and Hyde episode, which is entitled, I Learned It From Watching You. Yeah, episode six, so quite a while ago. Um, but that's where to go if you want to know more about the Barrymores. Like them and his parents, uh, he went into acting, because everyone in the Barrymore family acts. Like his younger brother John, he was initially opposed to becoming an actor. He actually really wished to be an artist and a painter. However, he achieved greater success as a character actor on stage than he did as a painter, so he resigned himself to acting. (laughs) Well, if I'm good at it, I guess I'll do it. Yeah. He began appearing in D.W. Griffith films in 1911, and in the 1920s he formed a good relationship with Louis B. Mayer, which led to his appearing almost exclusively in MGM films from 1926 onwards. His stage experience made him invaluable in the transition to sound, and by the 1930s, he had settled largely into playing older men in the grouchy but sweet archetype. An archetype that persists today. Sure. He suffered from acute arthritis that rendered it very difficult for him to be very physical in his roles after about 1930. And then um, he broke his hip in 1936 and again in 1937. And because of the arthritis, that never healed properly. So he would be unable to walk after 1937, um, which mostly meant that he could really only act on the radio. Um, But he did still appear in film from time to time. Most notably, he's Mr. Potter in It's a Wonderful Life. And then there was Bella Lugosi. We last saw Bella in 1934's The Black Cat. Since then, he had appeared in Carl Freund's comedy The Gift of Gab for Universal in a cameo appearance as himself. He then appeared in the Poverty Row serial The Return of Shandu, in which uh, Lugosi played the title role of Shandu after having played the villain in the original Shandu the Magician. His uh, last movie appearance before this one would be as the title villain in Monogram Pictures' The Mysterious Mr. Wong, where he plays a kind of Fu Manchu-esque character. To supplement his income, Lugosi had started to play Dracula on stage again in performances in the L.A. area, and this is what he'd been doing most recently when Browning brought him on to perform in Mark of the Vampire. Do you know if those theater performances have been fairly successful? Yeah, he generally made more money playing Dracula on stage than he did from kind of anything else he did. So then he's kind of writing that success into this vampire movie. Yeah, certainly trying to recapture past glories, I think. Um, Lugosi even used his stage Dracula costume for his costume in this movie. Ah, Lugosi had been suffering from uh, sciatic neuritis from wounds he suffered in World War I, which caused shooting pains up and down his legs. Uh, He had been taking asparagus juice for pain relief uh, up to this point, but in 1935, his doctor put him on morphine injections. Oh, no. And he would soon become addicted to morphine. Yeah. The story of Lugosi is not a happy one. No. Another familiar face in the cast for us is Lionel Atwill, 
Uh, we last saw him in 1933's Murders in the Zoo, uh, which was the last in a string of four horror films in a row that he made. He's appeared in 13 films in the two years since. Uh, murder mysteries, romantic dramas, straight drama, spy films, romances. The guy does everything. Yeah. <laughs> so this was sort of a return to horror after showing that he could do more than just that. Um, including uh, appearing in James Whale's drama One More River with Colin Clive, as we mentioned uh, in the Bride of Frankenstein episode. Joining Lugosi as a vampire in this film is actress Carol Borland. Born in 1914 in San Francisco, she was a drama student at UC Berkeley when she appeared in a Dracula stage production with Lugosi as one of the vampire's victims. Her familiarity with Lugosi won her the part in Mark of the Vampire, as well as her ability to imitate his movements as a vampire. Although she did not enjoy working with Todd Browning, uh, her appearance in the film, courtesy of makeup artist Bill Tuttle and costume designer Adrian, would establish an iconic look for female vampires, much as Lugosi himself had for male ones. Uh, her look in this movie influenced the appearance of Morticia Adams, Vampyra, and Lily Munster, and by extension the characters inspired by those three. Cool. Browning kept the ending of the film a secret from his actors, uh, as he didn't want their performances to suggest the final twist to the audience. He wanted the audience to sort of believe in the illusion of the first stretch of the movie before the twist ending. He gave them the final script pages the days they were to be shot, uh, at which point Lugosi declared the ending of the film to be absurd. <laughs> twist for twist's sake, perhaps? Mm. The original cut of the film was 80 minutes and was cut down to 60 for general release. The cuts included comedic scenes. Um, a lot of the comic relief characters got severely cut down. Mm. Plot exposition as well as a subplot that was cut for code reasons, uh, which was about the origins of Lugosi and Borland's vampire characters. This was that uh, Lugosi's character had committed incest with his daughter and been condemned to eternity as a vampire for this crime and committed suicide by gunshot. Okay. Um, I can see why the... Why Joseph Green would be upset about that. Yeah. So, although this whole subplot was cut, Lugosi's vampire character still bears an unexplained gunshot wound to the temple throughout the film as a result of this. The idea being that, you know, as a vampire, that wound would have never healed, right? Makes sense. Upon release, the film was a commercial hit. Uh, it also received broadly positive critical reviews. A lot of... Reviewers said it was like a, a really fun time, uh, a good horror movie to take the kids to, this kind of thing. Everybody seemed to like it. Its biggest critic was an American physician who wrote the New York Times letters to the editor section to complain that such films should not be shown for the sake of the mental health of the nation. Did they give any reason as to oh, why? Oh, yeah, there's a big long screed uh, about how... You know, it, it, it makes people nervous and gives them nightmares. And, and like, if people are already, like, emotionally uh, disturbed, like, films like this just make their conditions worse and blah, 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 blah. Okay. Uh, due to the film's twist ending, uh, modern reviews 
tend to be a lot more mixed, depending on people's reaction to that twist. Cool, I can't wait to see what it is. <laughs> so Mark of the Vampire is available on DVD from Warner Home Video as part of their Legends of Horror box set collection, which also includes Dr. X, Return of Dr. X, Mad Love, and The Devil Doll. The Devil Doll? Yeah, we'll get there. Um, <laughs> is that like the precursor to Chucky? We'll get there. Okay, sure, for sure. Oh, um, Mask of Fu Manchu with Boris Karloff is also in that set. Um, it's also available on its own uh, to stream through YouTube as well as the Microsoft Store. To check out this film on our YouTube playlist, you can go to screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. Until then, uh, you will hear a brief musical interlude, and we will be right back after watching Mark of the Vampire. I almost said Mark of Zorro. <laughs> <laughs> uh, directed by Todd Browning. See you on the other side, everyone. <laughs> Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching Mark of the Vampire. Sarah, how did you enjoy this film? I really liked it. Okay, neat. What did you like about it? I think we will probably dive into more of what I like about it in the discussion, but I really like Luna. <laughs> All right, cool. You know, we talked before the break about how this was sort of, you know, reuniting Bella Lugosi and Todd Browning for a vampire movie sort of the same year that James Whale and Boris Karloff and Colin Clive re reuniting for a Frankenstein sequel. Um, and both films kind of add a, like a female version of the monster as well mm -hmm. uh, to their stories. So it's kind of an interesting parallel there. Yeah, because women can't lead their own movies. They have to be put in with a confirmed <laughs> success. Okay, Sarah. <laughs> um, like, I can throw shade. <laughs> Do you want to tell us about the movie? I will say that, um, like, I gave, like, a, a bit of a synopsis from London After Midnight before the break, and this movie follows it pretty closely. Yeah, and when it's not following London After Midnight, it's following Dracula. Yeah. It really feels like Todd Browning sort of remaking both of those movies at the same time. So we're in Czechoslovakia because... Everyone keeps mentioning Prague as being, like, the closest big city. Mm -hmm. uh, we aren't in Prague. We're in sort of a village somewhere. It's definitely 1934. They say the year out loud. But it is still that, like, Universal Studios idea of Eastern Europe that, like, doesn't seem to bear a lot of resemblance to, like, geopolitical fact. This whole movie has a very Universal Studios horror feel. Like, if you didn't see the MGM logo at the start, I think you just assume this was a universal picture. Maybe because it, it's following the Dracula tropes. Draculin tropes? Sure. Yeah, very precisely. Yeah. So we're in this village, and um, Sir Carol Borotin has been killed. 
Uh, he lives in a big mansion in this village, and he's been found dead, and the village doctor thinks it's a vampire because he's got two pinpricks in his neck, and he's been drained dry of blood. And before this happens, the movie goes to a great deal of effort to tell us that this is a village where people still very strongly believe in vampires. Um, it's the same innkeeper from Dracula, who's <laughs> the innkeeper here, saying pretty much the exact same stuff. And you it know, it's nice to see he's still getting work warning from, people about va- vampires, right? From Todd Browning, <laughs> um, and uh, you know, so there's already these legends of um, Count Mora and his daughter, who are these vampires from the castle that's present in the folklore of this community. Um, an inspector from Prague, Inspector Newman, who's played by Lionel Atwill, shows up and is like, "Ah, vampires aren't real. Find me the real cause of death." Meanwhile, Sir Carol's daughter, Irina, is very upset by this. Uh, She has a young fiancé, Fedor, who she, you know, is going to get married to. Um, And now that Sir Carol is dead, she'll be under the care of Carol's friend, Baron Otto, uh, until she gets married. Mm -hmm. Flash forward a year, and it seems like Fedor and... Irina's marriage was maybe put off for a while in deference to the death of her father. Uh, But it's been a year later, and they're going to get married pretty soon now. Uh, All the preparations are being made when Fedor is attacked and bitten on the neck, and he's got the two bite wounds. The the mark of the vampire, if you will. (laughs) Uh, Soon after that, Irina herself is attacked, uh, and there are, you know, indeed two vampires going around. There's... uh, Count Mora, who's Bella Lugosi, who's just Dracula, four years older, with a bullet wound in the side of his head. <laughs> and then there's his daughter Luna, who has, you know, the long, dark, straight hair and the white gown. And she's actually the one doing the attacking of Irina, mm-hmm. which surprised me because, like, the the vampire-victim relationship is so highly sexualized in sort of our cultural interpretation of it, that I'm surprised that, like, woman-on-woman vampire action made it past the code. Well, even um, Count Mora is the one who's attacking Fedor, mm-hmm. right? So all of the vampire attacks in the film are same gender. Yeah. Anyways, at this point, um, Professor Zalen, who is Lionel Barrymore's role, shows up, and he's basically just not Van Helsing. And at this point... Zalen's not Van Helsing, Irina's not Mina, Fedor's not Jonathan Harker, Baron Otto is not Dr. Seward, um, Count Mora is not Dracula, and the next 35 minutes of the movie are just a speed run of Todd Browning's Dracula. I mean, there are certain shots and certain scenes and certain lines of dialogue that are just kind of verbatim. Certain props. Sure. <laughs> um, that goddamn fuzzy spider (laughs) crawling up the wall. Yeah, so the first 15 minutes are the prologue, the next 35 minutes are the plot of Dracula, then we get to the part in Dracula where um, in the Dracula version of the story it's Van Helsing and Harker go to stake Dracula in his lair. In this version it's Zalen, Inspector Newman, who's kind of our only character who doesn't have a Dracula analog, which should tip you off. Uh, and Baron Otto, and they go to the castle to go stake 
the vampires. Now, in addition to Count Mora and Luna, um, they've also spotted Sir Carol, who seemingly has been turned into a vampire as well. His coffin's empty. He's been walking around at night with Count Mora. There's also, like, a fourth dude who's look like, really skinny and has a weird-looking face, but he never gets a name or explained at all, so... I think it's, uh... I think it's the guy who's helping with props at the end. Yes, it is that guy, but, like... But now in the context, spoiled yes. things for the listener. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in the context of the story, he doesn't make sense. Um, so there's <laughs> there's four vampires, three dudes, and Luna. Um, they go over to the castle, they look in through a window, they see Sir Carol's playing the organ like he used to when he was alive, and Luna's flying around and, like transforms from a bat back into herself in a really cool scene. And then they all go back to their, their coffins, because it's daytime. So our three old men go into the crypts, the vaults, to go uh, stake them. Um, and Baron Otto's, like, really freaking out at seeing Carol back alive. Uh, you know, he just wants that guy dead and out of the way as soon as possible. The other vampire stuff certainly seems to have him significantly on edge as well. But Professor Zalen explains, like, no, we got to kill them all at once, because, like, if we killed one of them and then the other three ganged up on us, like, we'd be screwed. Uh, that takes, like, all day. Like, daytime lasts, like, two hours in, <laughs> in Prague. Um, it's closer... And, like, five minutes in the film. Yeah, it's closer to the North Pole than I thought it was. <laughs> um, so now that night has fallen again, um, you know, Irina's doing the whole Mina bit where she's turning into a vampire and is going to suck her lover's blood. Uh, so he's freaked out about that. Everybody runs over to the castle. Um, Irina gets, you know, captured by Luna. Fedor gets attacked by Count Mora. And suddenly, Irina's, you know, in a room with vampire Sir Carol, her dad. And she says, oh, you know what? Actually, no, I can't go through with this. This is too weird. Uh, and, like, walks out. And the inspector and the professor are like, like no, like, shut up. Like, you gotta gotta do the thing otherwise like this whole thing was for nothing and it turns out that there are no vampires uh that sir carol is actually dead and this is just an actor who looks a lot like sir carol that count moore is an actor that luna is an actor that random other vampire is an actor and it's all been like smokes and mirrors and tricks to try and freak out baron otto i guess so then professor zalen hypnotizes otto into reliving the events of a year before. The actor they've got playing Sir Carol is still playing Sir Carol, and they sort of have them reenact the events so that they can see how Baron Otto killed Sir Carol and sort of prove that he's the one who did it. And it turns out that, yeah, Baron Otto wanted to kill Sir Carol because Carol was going to give his consent for Fedor to marry Irina, and Otto wanted to marry Irina instead uh so he killed carol and made it look like a vampire attack because the people in this place are superstitious once they had that proved that's the end of the movie even though it's this combination of dracula and london after midnight and really hits the same kind of beats that dracula does like because you're totally right that it just is like a speed run Mm -hmm. of dracula i still really enjoyed it i had a really fun time it's certainly like a really fun movie i think a lot of its appeal comes from its visuals Mm -hmm. um 
a lot of the imagery of the vampires and the coffins and the cemeteries and the bats and the other random creatures uh, feels like a deliberate attempt to out Dracula Dracula. A little bit. And it kind of works because Dracula is a stage play mm-hmm. except when it's at the castle yeah. or on the boat. Yeah. Um, whereas this is like a horror movie aesthetic throughout the entire thing. And done well, too. Yeah, yeah. The cinematography is really good. The atmosphere is really good. A lot of the imagery is very effective at building atmosphere, right? Like the fog, the cobwebs, the random bizarre animals that Todd Browning insists lives in vampire lairs. Uh, this there were time, no armadillos. No, possums the- this time. So I guess like <laughs> this is Czech Dracula. Sure. Right? In our in our running series of redos of Dracula in other countries. <laughs> Instead of a fishing rod, rubber bat, we've got this like mechanical one with motorized flapping wings that must have cost them a lot of money because they're sure to use it every chance they get. And sometimes it looks like it's smoking, but it's really just <laughs> fog. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we also get some on-screen vampire to bat transformations, which we didn't get in Dracula. They're, in some cases, pretty simple, like uh, one's just a simple dissolve where the bat fades out and Bela Lugosi fades in, um, but the the one with Luna is quite elaborate, um, where she's, you know, they show the bat, and then the next thing you see is the actress who plays Luna, Carol Boland, like, flying around with these big bat wings, and then she, like, comes in for a, a landing, and they kind of fold up into her dress. Yeah, that was really cool. Yeah, that might have been the best five seconds of the whole movie. <laughs> Um, I don't know about that, calling it the best, but uh, it was definitely enjoyable. It should be said that the vampires don't really get any lines. No, um, they don't say anything until after we find out they're actors. Yeah. And in that, even then, they, um, I think they each get like one line each. Like Lugosi gets one line and Carol Bollard gets one line. Yeah. Um, they are great, though, throughout the whole movie, like in terms of their silent spooky vampiriness. It just makes me think of when Lugosi walked off Frankenstein for having to play a character who couldn't talk mm-hmm. or whatever. And now he, he's playing, you know, a role like this where he's got no dialogue. Yeah. Oh, the story of Lugosi is just heartbreaking. Anyways. You can, you can tell that they weren't told they weren't playing real vampires. Like, the way that they portray their characters the whole movie through... You know, they aren't playing them the way they would if they weren't real vampires. Definitely. Like, the mo- they play their parts totally straight, basically, the whole movie. Which I think is what makes it work. Okay, maybe. It depends on what your goal is, because I think this is one of those examples of, like, a twist ending that works for the twist, in that the audience doesn't see it coming. But I do feel it's one of those examples of a twist ending where if you watch this movie a second time, knowing the twist, it probably doesn't make any fucking sense. That's that's fair. I know you like movies where they give hints here and there so you could potentially figure out the twist beforehand. Mm-hmm. I, I still think that this worked. Yeah, I mean, it makes more sense to have twist endings in this style when you're in an era where, like, you don't have home video. I, I always prefer a movie where the movie works even more seeing it the second time knowing the twist as opposed to this, which is kind of that sixth sense style of twist where you're sitting there going like wait if he's been dead the whole time how did he pay for a check like how did he pay for his meal at that restaurant like this makes no sense i do think however 
that even if Lugosi and Ballard weren't told the ending, I think Barrymore was. Yeah, the way he's playing to the back row, Mm -hmm. if you know what I mean. Um, That's part of what kept my interest. Okay. So I, I, I did try to, like, figure out, like, it made sense when the movie switched gears to do the London After Midnight adaptation that um, I was intrigued because I didn't know what was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, I've never seen London After Midnight. No one has who's currently alive. Yeah, I was going to say, people have seen it. Yeah, but no, yeah. <laughs> but, um, no one listening to this podcast. <laughs> but Dracula I've seen so many times. Mm-hmm. So why was I not bored with seeing them do the play-by-play? Right. And I think it definitely had something to do with the way that the mood was being set, whereas a lot of Dracula is like a stage play. And I, I think it was because uh, there was that emphasis on Luna. Mm-hmm. Like, I was intrigued by this same gender vampire attacks. Sure. But Lionel Barrymore made it fun in <laughs> a kind of way that was like, yeah, no shit. That, like, you can't just kill this one vampire. Like, of course you have to go. You just kind of went along with it in the way he's being so emphatic that he is Van Helsing. You know, um, it was interesting because, like, so many of his scenes are exactly Van Helsing's lines and dialogue from Dracula. At least mm-hmm. in the, the middle 35 minutes of the movie where they're doing the Dracula adaptation. What was, like you said, he's sort of playing to the back row. He's very broad. He's very over the top. He, he, he read to me almost like he was a parody of Van Helsing, right? More than playing bit. it straight. But that at least makes sense once you know the twist and you know that in retrospect he doesn't actually mean any of this stuff he's saying, right? It makes sense that, all you know, in retrospect he's a little bit ridiculous and over the top, especially because he doesn't really feel so ridiculous once they're into that last ten minutes of the movie where you know what the truth is. Definitely. I mean, if you were in a room with someone who's that convinced that, mm. no, these are vampires, mm-hmm. you would either be like, you're insane, or you'd be totally sold with it. The character is doing this overacting to convince the other characters to go along with this ruse, I guess. Yeah, I. it was a little over the top for me, because um, it, it kind of sometimes strays into feeling like he more belongs in a Mel Brooks movie. <laughs> Maybe. Um, especially, like, you know, with Edward Van Sloan's Van Helsing, fresh in my mind, like, that is, you know, that's a much more straight performance of this type of character. What was sort of interesting to me is that, like, Anthony Hopkins Van Helsing in the 1992 Dracula is a lot like this. Mm. Like, this kind of really brash and over-the-top kind of zany portrayal. But, yeah, Lionel Barrymore is clearly having a lot of fun. Like, he's not taking this role seriously. Whereas I feel like, like, Lugosi is, which makes it make sense that he was kind of upset that the ending turned out to be not what he thought it was. And that he'd been, you know, as an actor, I'd be upset too if, like, I had been purposely misled by my director into thinking my role was one thing until the last minute. Because you'd certainly play the part differently if you knew. But, of course, that's why Browning didn't tell him, right? Yeah. Speaking of Lugosi, I wanted to talk about the cuts in the movie. Sure. And I think I'm okay with the fact that there were cuts made. Kind of two reasons. So before the break, you said that what was kind of cut was stuff with exposition, mm-hmm. um, but also this whole 
uh, background on the vampire characters, specifically Lugosi's character. Yeah. Um, and how he turned into a vampire and all that. Yeah, and I think the idea was, um, looking at the movie, you know, in the context of how the movie actually plays out, the idea is supposed to be that, like, the vampires that Lugosi and Luna are portraying are quote-unquote real folklore characters to the people of the village, so this backstory is the backstory that's known to the villagers, right? Because, like, right? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I think having more exposition would have slowed things down and Mm -hmm. might have bored me (laughs) with this play-by-numbers Dracula remake. Sure. (laughs) Because, like, I don't need the exposition of Irina's being turned into a vampire or, like, Whatever. Um, Instead, what we get are screams and then the explanation. And what I mean by that is, like, kind of the key example is um, when we're in that 35-minute Dracula thing, um, the maid and the butler uh, are, like, putting... (laughs) What is it? It's not Wolfsbane. Yeah, it's Batthorn. Batthorn. Because I guess Universal Studios owned the world supply of Wolfsbane, so we had to... (laughs) Get another uh, herb. That thorn isn't real. Listen. It's just an off-brand wolfsbane. <laughs> Anyways, they're putting it around the house, and as, like, the guys are downstairs talking or something, we hear screaming, and it's just, like, there's constant screaming in the house, mm-hmm. but then, like, we get a very brief, I guess, flashback to yeah. show why they were screaming, because Dracula entered... Sorry, Count Mora entered the house. <laughs> um... But it kept the Dracula portion going. Yeah. You know? Um, Or even when, like, they're splitting up to go search for things or prepare the house with Batthorn or whatever. Um, There's no stopping with, like, okay, so you guys go to the basement, I'll go to the attic, and splitting up that way. People just go. Yeah, I will say that the thing that's almost nice about that stretch of the movie that's just doing Dracula again is that because it's 35 minutes of the movie, the pace of it's really quick. So, you know, like, speaking as a modern viewer, you know, we haven't seen London After Midnight. So the parts that are London After Midnight, which are sort of like the first 15 minutes and the last 10, are new to us. That middle 35 isn't. So the quickened pace of that middle 35 helps helps you get through it because you already know all this stuff. And it's nice that the, the movie doesn't, hold your hand too much during those scenes because it knows everyone's seen Dracula. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there's one point where Zalen is explaining some vampire lore bullshit and he gets like halfway through before something else in the story comes in and and interrupts him, which is fine because we know. Yeah, and I think having exposition like that kind of be interrupted by screams to kind of keep our interest and also just cutting down more of the exposition in the cuts helped the movie stay interesting to me. Mm -hmm. The other reason why I'm okay with the cuts, um, specifically the background on the vampires, Mm -hmm. I think if it was given in the context of like, look, there's Count Mora, here's his backstory, (laughs) um, it would have (laughs) felt, this is tough because it's a little meta, but like the characters trying to convince the Baron that these are vampires were trying too hard. Sure. You know, like when a lie... You try to over-explain a lie, and people know that that's a lie, whereas if you have, like, a nugget of the truth in there, or, like, you don't over-explain or, yeah. it, like, then it's it's bought more easily. Yeah. So that's why I'm okay with the background being cut. Okay. That makes sense. But I think it does muddle a thematic fear 
that this could yeah, have had. Yes, yes. I, I absolutely agree with you on that. This is my problem with this movie. Okay. So, I will say in this movie's favor that whether it's because maybe he had a bit more money in this film, or maybe it's just that he wasn't adapting a stage play this time around, so he was a little bit more free to do things, certainly it seems like Todd Browning's learned how to show instead of tell, because mm-hmm. uh, we, we see bats, and we see transformations, and we see a big white wolf at one point, and we, we see a lot of the things that in Dracula people would have sort of told us about. Even that example you gave of, like, them actually doing a flashback to show us what the servants saw, as opposed to them just describing it, right? Yeah. But I think, you know, the ending of this movie is the controversial thing, right? The crux of, like, I think if you don't like the twist sours the rest of the movie or it has the potential to right Mm -hmm. because if you're watching this whole movie and you're thinking like oh what a cool horror movie and like hey it's browning doing dracula but he's gotten like better at it so it's even cooler and then it's like no none of it was real it feels really old-fashioned in the context of 1935 right to do this scooby-doo ending where we pull the mask off and oh actually right for sure um it, it feels like a letdown after how well Browning and his collaborators have built up this horror mood uh, and atmosphere. You know, if it wasn't for the fact that it's the same ending as London After Midnight, I'd suspect that it was something of, like, MGM playing it safe after Freaks and also after The Code coming in. Mm-hmm. But, it, but it is. It's the same ending, right? Like, it's, that's the crux of the story of London After Midnight, right? Yeah. The problem I have with it is not so much the ending itself, where the vampires aren't real. My problem with it is more just how little sense it makes. And I think the cuts are part of why it doesn't really make sense to me. Okay. So the ruse is to trap the Baron, right? Yeah. Why do they need this elaborate ruse? Why make him think there are real vampires after Irina when A, it was his plan to chalk up Sir Carol's murder to vampires. So if anyone in this town knows that vampires aren't real, it's him. Because he was the one using vampires as a ruse to begin with. And B, the vampire shit isn't even how they get him to confess. They just hypnotize him into reenacting the events of the year before. So why did they need to have all the vampire nonsense? Um, I'm pretty sure Lionel Atwell, whatever his character's name is. Inspector Newman. Inspector Newman. <laughs> um, I'm pretty sure that there's like an explanation given that like... They were doing the vampire thing to root out who the suspect was. Okay. Because there were so many suspects, but no real trail. Okay. And then once they figured out who could be more of a suspect, Mm -hmm. then they targeted the Baron, and then they did the thing with the climax. Sure. For my money, I think the entire vampire ruse would have made more sense if the backstory of Count Mora and Luna had stayed in. Because... The Count was damned to his fate after committing this incest with his daughter, and the Baron wanting to marry his own ward uh, is a similar kind of breach of trust. It would have linked those things together so that the Baron being afraid of the vampires, you know, it would have been like, okay, you used this vampire folklore to cover your tracks in this murder, but it turns out the vampires are real, and, like, you are planning a similar sin... Therefore, like, you'll be damned to eternity as well. Like, those fears would have compounded in a way that would have made sense and and made me understand why they were doing any of this. 
I think that's a very fair critique, because um, I was feeling the same way that if they had left in the back end of the vampires, um, the fear would have been more than just vampires. It would have been something... <laughs> Getting caught by the cops. <laughs> it would have been something a bit more thematic, like the sins catching up with you or yes. being reprimanded. Yeah. But like, um, it's still there a little bit because um, before the professor hypnotizes the Baron. Mm -hmm. You know, he's trying to convince the Baron to go up and talk to Vampire Carol mm -hmm. to, like, turn him against the other vampires or something. Yeah. Because something along the lines of, like, if he was as kind-hearted in life as you have described him, that should still be there as a vampire. Yeah, that's sort of an interesting thing in this movie's quote-unquote vampire lore is, like, if you're evil in life, you're an evil vampire. But if you're a good person in life, you'd just be a good vampire. Yeah. And, like, the Baron's like, no, no, I can't. Mm -hmm. Because, and I think that's the moment when they realize, when at least the professor is has his suspicions confirmed that the Baron is the one who murdered him. Right. Because he fears being reprimanded by the person who he murdered. Yes. Yeah. Movies with twist endings like this walk a tricky line. Because, on the one hand, you're right. If there's... You know, it's like, um, what was the movie we watched? Uh, House of Mystery, where the movie ends, and then there's like a five-minute scene after it's over with a character explaining how the plot worked. And you just don't care by that point, right? You're like, ah, but you caught the bad guy. So you, people are leaving the theater by that point, right? And you have some person being like, so in, in scene 2A, when this guy's hand appeared, that was actually me from behind, you know, and you don't care. The flip side is if you don't have enough of that explanation, you leave the theater going like, wait, what? <laughs> what the fuck was any of that, right? So it's a, it's a, it definitely it's like a tough needle to thread, I think, between explaining too much and your audience is bored, and explaining not enough and your plot doesn't make sense. Yeah. I think this plot still makes sense if you can buy into the experience of vampires. Yeah. It, it just, it's certainly for me one of those cases of like, they wait a year right? And like, surely, surely there are better methods of like catching a murderer, right? Like, they like, said all other methods failed. I, I, like, I, what did you, did you try the like light in the face during the interrogation? Yeah. I mean, did you like try good cop, bad cop. This is, I feel like these kinds of ploys are really common in like murder mystery stories of this vintage and it just makes me think, like, how hard was being a cop before DNA evidence? Like, <laughs> all right, well, we're going to wait a year, and then we're going to hire a troop of actors with, like, elaborate special effects to pretend to be vampires, so that, and we're going to convince everyone, including people who aren't the Baron, like, we're, we're going to just make everyone think there's vampire, so that we can trap this guy after we've hypnotized him into, like, post-hypnotically confessing the... Th like, it's like, holy crap, dude. Like, just take him in into an interrogation room and rough him up a bit. And, like, when he comes out, you'll... Like, it's fine. Oh, man. Um, the other thing that doesn't make sense to me is... And, like, they... They try to, like, get past this as quick as possible. But if a vampire didn't kill Carol, right? Like, if it's the Baron, how the hell did he get all the blood out of Carol without it being everywhere like with they it being said so with the, the okay. heated glass right 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 but like sarah so what they so the explanation they give is that like he heated up a glass like the kind of glass you'd have like a 
glass of milk before bed in. And then he would have pricked Carol's neck, and then the, the because of the heat in the glass, it creates suction, and would have sucked his blood out. There's like, what, uh, like five to six pints of blood in the human body? So, you know, imagine that. He's got the glass up against his neck. He fills one whole glass, so that's, what, like a quarter of a gallon? Like, what does he do with the, the blood now that that glass is full? Does he have another glass standing by? Does he pour it into a bucket that he has there? And when he removes the glass from his neck, like, you're going to have blood spurting out everywhere before you can get the glass back to get more of it. It's... Like, it's a thing where in the moment of the movie, you're like, okay, but like you sit, you sit and think about that for more than five seconds. That makes no sense at all. I think you're forgetting <laughs> about uh, that one subsection of the code saying that you cannot show a murder and, and have it be easily replicated. Yeah, you can't explicitly explain how someone kills someone, which is a problem in murder mysteries, <laughs> especially murder mysteries where the whole mystery is that the murderer covered his tracks by making it look like the murderer was murder was committed in like a supernatural way. But I, I see your point. They had to make it something that wasn't actually replicatable. It just ends up being very laughably stupid. <laughs> you know, regardless of whether you hate the ending or what, the thing I'll say about Mark of the Vampire is that it's sort of an interesting take two for Browning on two of his earlier films. Um, James Wong Howe provides very excellent atmosphere. You know, Definitely. Cinematography is very good in this film. If it weren't for the fact that this is just two earlier movies mashed together, I think I might like it more. Um, but as it stands, it's just another Dracula that's not quite as good as Dracula. Yeah, I don't know if I completely agree, um, because I feel like it uses that familiarity and expectations of Dracula to draw us into the belief of the vampires as well. For sure. It's, it's certainly a movie that's effective because Dracula exists. I don't think that makes it better than Dracula, because ultimately Dracula has that room to tell its story, for one thing, um, but also, for me, the thing that's so great about Dracula is Lugosi's performance, and his performance is really a non-issue when he can't talk, frankly. You know, all that Lugosi charm and power is gone, and sure, that works for this movie, where he's just some actor pretending to be a vampire, but if we're comparing those movies head-to-head, -head, it makes it I think, a lesser film. Lesser horror film, definitely. But I still think this film works, I guess is what I want to make sure to get yeah. across. okay. Because, like, while Mark of the Vampire relies heavily on the Dracula formula, I, I don't think you necessarily need to have seen Dracula in order for this film to work. Mm. Versus if you think about Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein. Sure. Bride of Frankenstein doesn't work if you haven't seen Frankenstein. Sure. I think it's because, you know, in a lot of ways, Mark is just playing on tropes more than it's playing on specifics. Yeah. And for that reason, and, and the twist kind of, uh, twist slash cutting of the background of the vampires, um, making that surface level fear of vampires versus, like, something more thematic or even, like, societal or anything like that 
as far as ranking goes, it's definitely going below Dracula, like way below Dracula for me. Yeah, I think um, I think we're we're you know we're basically into it already. So let's let's talk ranking. Certainly, the the fact that the movie has um, you know is fun but has very little going on under the surface, I think, is going to hurt it a bit. As much as there's stuff in this movie that I think is better done than it was done in Dracula, like there are moments in this that improve on Dracula, right? Definitely. That improvement comes from this being the same director and same actor with, like, even the sets. Like, some of the sets in the in the castle are, like... I'm pretty sure, like, that uh, staircase, I'm pretty sure that's just the staircase. If it's not the same staircase, it was clearly explicitly designed to look like the staircase from Dracula. Because they pull the same bit of, yeah. like, oh, they walked through the web without disturbing it, like... Anyways, my point being that um, even though a lot of these moments are pulled off better than they were in Dracula, they're just kind of a pantomime here of what was actually genuine moments in Dracula. Yeah. So what are you looking at for range, Sarah? Uh, I was looking fairly right in the middle of the list. Okay. Um, So I was feeling like maybe uh, below The Mummy at 27, Mm. perhaps competing with Supernatural at 28, um, but part of why I started looking at this area is because there's another movie we've watched that also had the vampires aren't real right. premise, and that was Vampire Bat at 29. Right. Um, so I started kind of looking around there, and as much as Vampire Bat is really cool, and I like the way that it's the villagers getting in hysterics and going after Dwight Fry. When really it's just Lionel Atwell trying to bring a sponge to life or something. <laughs> um, I think that's really fun. We also really heavily critiqued its use of comedy with the ant. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, Mark of the Vampire should at least go above the Vampire Bat at 29. Yeah, I think visually, too, Mark of the Vampire is a better movie. Like, Vampire Bat was a, I think it was like a Poverty Row picture. Um, it was the same director as Monster Walks. Yeah. Um, and I think this is just, you know, like, Browning's got better skill than that, you know? So I was looking quite a bit higher than you. Okay. Um, so my range was 14 to 22. Um, and I think why I was looking in this range is with the twist ending in place, you could argue that Mark of the Vampire isn't much of a horror film because there's nothing here to really be afraid of. It's just... Uh, a murder mystery plot, really, yeah. right? Um, you know, it's it's more akin to Hound of the Baskervilles, you know, than Dracula. But when thinking of it as a horror movie, you know, what does it have to offer as a horror movie? Really what it has to offer is the visuals and the atmosphere. So I was sort of comparing it to other movies on that basis. Sure. And on that basis, you know, the first thing I thought of was actually Cat in the Canary in terms of being a visually atmospheric horror film that ends with a bit of a, you know, oh, actually, it was cousin, you know, Brian under this mask the whole time. <laughs> and, uh, and you know, is, is a bit more of a comedy and, and isn't really a real, quote-unquote, horror movie. So I started comparing it to the Cat in the Canary. I thought maybe you could make the argument it was better than Cat in the Canary, um, but I wouldn't put it any higher. You know, it wasn't better than, than Phantom of the Opera or Nosferatu or anything real. And then sort of I, I worked my way down the list from there, you know, thinking, well, you know, Vampire, you could argue, is better. Um, 
Student of Prague from 1926, you could argue, is better. Freaks, you could argue, is better. There's a, maybe something to be said about the way that, like, Mark of the Vampire is a horror movie for 50 minutes and then switches genres to non-horror in the last 10, and Freaks is the opposite. Like, Freaks is not a horror movie until the last 10 minutes, and then it switches genres, right? So there's sort of an interesting comparison to be made there. So making my way down the list, I, thinking about it versus White Zombie was kind of interesting because they're both Dracula ripoffs, and I thought there were stuff about Mark of the Vampire that I thought was stronger than White Zombie, but I liked that Lugosi got to have a character in White Zombie, right? Like, it's, it's, Lugosi's good in Mark of the Vampire, but what he's doing in this movie he could do in his sleep. Yeah. Um, and then where I ended at number 22 was because I thought, well, if what Mark of the Vampire has to offer is visuals and atmosphere, I think it does that better than the original Student of Prague from 1913. So that's how I kind of ended up with my range. Um, so my floor is 22, and your sort of ceiling you were looking in and around was the mummy at 27. So if we're looking in and around that area... Um, does anything sort of jump out at you as a point of comparison? Murders in the Rue Morgue. Sure. As much as Mark of the Vampire has to deal with that twist and giving too much exposition versus not enough, and also how both films had cuts that were detrimental. Yeah, to the story making sense. To the sense. story making sense. Um, Murders in the Rue Morgue is a lot more scary. So how about the fact that like, I see what you're saying. They're also both very stylish films. Yes. Um, and Mark of the Vampire doesn't have the weird, like, hard right into pastoral. Yeah, I was going to say. So, you know, ultimately, Murders in the Room Org might have more genuine horror, and it might be scarier in places, and it might, you know, imply something real that Mark of the Vampire doesn't have. And they both have these stylish visuals, but, um, you know, how much of the weird attempts at comic relief uh, in Murders in the Rue Morgue, Marit versus Mark of the Vampire. I'm just wondering, you know, do you prefer Murders in the Rue Morgue, that film's willingness to go there versus Mark the Vampire's kind of tepidness? Or do you prefer the fact that Mark the Vampire, like, keeps up this consistent tone all the way through, whereas Murders in the Rue Morgue has weird, you know, attempts at relieving the audience's tension? Yeah, those are really good questions, and I don't know how to answer them. Because um... I think, honestly, like, I think I'm going to sort of put my foot down and say that I think Mark the Vampire is better than Mystery of the Wax Museum. Even though Mystery of the Wax Museum, you know, has a real threat at the end of the day. Wax Museum is so... It's such a Warner Brothers movie with its cops <laughs> and its drug dens and its wisecracking reporters... And stuff, whereas Mark of the Vampire, like, really goes for the horror atmosphere. It's it's really MGM trying to beat Universal at its own game, you know, until they pull back the curtain at the end. So I, I think it, it has to be better than Wax Museum. Um, but is it better or worse than Rue Morgue? Yeah, Murders in the Rue Morgue is such a tough cookie because it's like... When it's horror, it's horror. Yeah, and then when it's not, it's not. It's like... Actually, to continue to describe it as a cookie, it's like when you go to bite into a chocolate chip cookie and it turns out to be... Raisins? Raisins and bran, oatmeal, whatever. Yeah, sure. An oatmeal um, raisin cookie, yeah. But there's, like, a couple of, like, 
It's like raisins and chocolate chips mixed in. <laughs> what monster would do such a thing? <laughs> exactly. Uh, apparently Robert Flory. But, um... <sighs> yeah, whereas, like... Whereas this, it was like... Mark of the Vampire is like you were given half of a cookie, and then you were told that you had to have, like, a stalk of celery after it, or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> Not even that. Just, like, given, like, half of a, a cookie... Like a sugar cookie, where, like, there's no chocolate, it's just, like, sugar butter flour, like, the basics of, like, what a cookie is. Sure. And you're just like, this is good and satisfying. <laughs> so. But was it satisfying, Sarah? I think it was. I had fun. Yeah, I, yes. I had fun, too. I think Mark the Vampire is a really fun movie. I think it's really worth seeing. I think its visuals do a lot of cool stuff. But it, it certainly there isn't as much to chew on as some other films. To kind of help figure this out, thinking right. about Dr. X, mm -hmm. we forgot to mention that the maid in Dr. X is in this. As, as the maid. The maid. She's the, it's the same shtick. She's running around <laughs> screaming at the slightest provocation. It was um, good to see Lionel Atwill again. I yeah, missed that guy. I did. I missed his voice. He's gotten a little chubby in this one. <laughs> uh, but that's okay. I think... Dr. X has a better horror movie. Okay. Just because for me, what what's making me struggle with Murders in the Remorque is the pastoral bullshit. Like, I just keep thinking of that whole fucking, like, let's sing a college song. Ha ha ha. And then go to the park and go on a swing for a bit. Yeah. After seeing, like, someone get tortured to death. Right. So. But, like, someone gets tortured to death. Yeah. And then there's, like, the way that um, she gets kidnapped and her mom gets killed and, and all that. Yeah. Yeah, that whole fucking thing. So I'm comfortable putting this below Murders in the Remoric above Mystery of the Wax Museum. Okay, I can go with that. I think it's tough because, like, I think of some of the scenes and the visuals in this movie and I go like, oh yeah, that's, that's more horror than, you know, some of these other films. But I don't know if it's really more horror so much as it's more Halloween. That is a great way to describe it, yes. Like, Mark of the Vampire is a very Halloween movie with, like, crypts and cemeteries and uh, tombstones and cobwebs everywhere. I mean, they've got the, the you know... <laughs> the... <laughs> they, they have the spiders working overtime. Exactly. Um, it's... But even in the, like, pretending to be a vampire. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's very Halloween more than it is horror. So... You know, I think I'm making that mistake of confusing having a lot of Halloween aesthetic with being a horror movie, which is not actually true. And I have to remember that, you know, in the last ten minutes, this movie turns into a murder mystery, that there's nothing really to be afraid of here, and that a lot of this movie is just a remake of Dracula. Yeah. I will say, though, even if there's not a lot to be afraid of, was this the first movie we've watched for the list that made you jump? I think so, yeah. Okay, so there's this, like, they're, ex they're exploring the castle when um, the professor, the inspector, and the baron are in the library with the candlestick. And, <laughs> um, yeah, they're exploring the mansion, and uh, they go, oh, look, there's a bat. And it's actually kind of neat. They use real bats in mm -hmm. this movie. Um, and we have a, a close-up of the bat hanging off of, like, a chandelier. And then... I think it's like the Baron. It's the inspector. The I inspector think. just pulls out, like, 
we don't see this, but like there are shots fired right at the bat and the shots hit the wall because at this time they were using live ammunition still. And like they don't hit the bat, they hit the wall, but because you're just seeing this bat and then suddenly like shots are heard, I jumped. Yeah, it was, I think it was the, the sound of the gunshots. Yes. Like this movie stumbles, there's not a lot of music in this movie. That actually makes it feel even more old-fashioned than some of the other things. Like, That's true. There's m- music at the start of the film, but there's none throughout, whereas like, we're well into the era of films having full scores, right? But because of that, this movie kind of stumbles backwards into what will one day become a tried-and-true horror movie method of like having no sound and then having a sudden loud sound uh, to make someone jump in their seat. But I think that means this is actually our first horror movie that's made you jump. Which mm-hmm. is significant. That's true. This does not count as a jump scare, though. Sure. Because I'm jumping at the sudden sound. Uh, there's nothing visually going on to create that scare. It's just the shots on the wall. Well, the visual component isn't the biggest part of what a jump scare is. I think just sound manipulation can get you there. I think what's key is that this movie isn't doing it on purpose. I think it's 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 that I don't get the feeling like the people making it knew that that was going to be a moment that would make people jump, I think it's accidental. And it's going to be a later film that figures out how to use that more purposefully. Yeah, perhaps with a jump scare, the better... Yes, uh, intent is important. Um, and another way to figure out whether that's its intent is the tension leading up to it. Because mm-hmm. this, there was no tension. It was just like, oh, we're looking around. Hey, look, a bat. Because they're looking for evidence of the mm-hmm. vampires. Like, it, there's no tension. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways. Okay, so we're decided, though, on this being where it ranks? Yes. Okay. So coming into the list at number 26, Mark of the Vampire from 1935, directed by Todd Browning. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you'll find links to uh, the other episodes that we might have mentioned earlier, as well as an appeals box if you'd like to contest the ranking of any previous episode and film, or if you'd like to send us concerns or questions. If Tumblr isn't your bag, you can talk to us on Twitter at underscore ScreamScene, or email us at ScreamScenePodcast at gmail.com. ScreamScene updates every Wednesday, and we are available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Google Play, as well as any podcasting apps uh, that can access our RSS feed. If you'd like to support the show, one of the ways that you can do that is by leaving us a review on iTunes. Uh, We also appreciate comments, reviews on other platforms. Ratings. Ratings, yeah. Uh, These all help people see the show and notice it on those platforms. Additionally, if you know anyone who you think might be interested in the show, people who are into classic Hollywood or film history or horror movies, uh, let them know about the show. Uh, Word of mouth is the best way for podcasts to grow their audience. What are we watching next week, Ben? Next week, we're back at Universal Studios for our first werewolf movie. That first is... Listen, we've been burned before. Uh, Yes, yes, wolf blood. But I think this is our first real werewolf movie. It's 1935's Werewolf of London. Okay, looking forward to it. All right, well, we'll see you next week, Creatures of the Night. Bye. Bye.